Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Activities themselves have emotional value in them. And everyone's different. So no one can tell you. This is why advice can be so pernicious and comparison can be so pernicious. Nobody's got the same red threads as you. And yet, if you want to see what's the secret to happiness, you find the red threads in each domain of your life. And then you tilt, if you like, you tilt your life toward them. You imbalance your life. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. From time to time on this wild ride, on this, on this podcast, I like to reach out to an expert whose clanging wisdom hit me over the head at some point and it made its way into one of my books, always fully attributed. I like to to find this person, this philosopher, scientist, whoever it might be, and ask them to join me back here on Wild to delve deeper into their idea. So the lady in red is an example, and so too is the psychotherapist James Hollis, who who once said to me his line, our souls are calling us to our appointment with life. Uh, I wrote about it in one of my books and, of course, had him on this Wild podcast not so long ago. And I'll put the links to a few of these episodes in the notes. But today I've tracked down another such wise contributor. Marcus Buckingham is a British pop trend researcher who often wrote for Cosmo when I was the editor there many moons ago. There was some research he did back in 2009 that caught my attention. Now, a massive study had been done that found that as women's lives opened up to more freedoms and choices, they got unhappier. It revealed what was called the paradox of female happiness. Now, the research identified that the unhappiest person on the planet was a 42-year-old female lawyer, which struck me as very specific and and pretty sad, actually. I know a lot of 42-year-old lawyers. Now, in response to these findings, Marcus decided to investigate inversely what the happiest women were doing differently. And his conclusion was this. They didn't strive for balance. Yep true story. In fact, they strove for imbalance and did this wild thing called tilting. It's a concept that back almost 15 years ago really gelled for me and has continued to right up until today. And you might recall that I wrote about it in First We Make the Beast Beautiful. Many of you have brought it up with me over the years. These happiest women tilted towards activities and commitments that they liked and found meaningful. They didn't wait for the chaos and all the competing responsibilities to get under control, they moved their energy towards the charming, towards joyful things amid the chaos. Now, just last year, another massive McKinsey report found that this paradox of female unhappiness is widening. Women are getting even more unhappy the older they get and more unhappy when compared with men. So I figured it might be a really good time to get Marcus in to talk, you know, through this radical idea of tilting as a salve. Today, Marcus Buckingham is the head of people and performance research at the ADP Research Institute, and he's author of two of the best-selling business books of all time. He's become known for his standout strengths protocol, which I've come across in recent years. We'll cover a few clangers from this and his most recent book, Love and Work, which explores how to love what you do, which is to say, it explores how to tilt. Marcus Buckingham, welcome so much to Wild. It's it's actually a real pleasure to put 
a face to a byline that was in my life for quite some time. And I followed your work over the years. So lovely to talk directly. Well, same with you. This is great and obviously a big gold subject that we can dive into. So I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. It's a juicy one. So just to, um, to preface things, a few years ago, I think it was in 2009, I came across I came across your work via Oprah, I think it was. It might have been one of her magazines. You picked up on a study that showed that the unhappiest person on the planet was a 42-year-old female lawyer, uh, which I'm so sorry to any of the female lawyers listening in on this, but maybe, maybe you can relate. That work's pivoted from some detailed studies of, I think, close to 50,000 Americans. It mm. highlighted the paradox of female unhappiness. And my understanding, Marcus, is this, this paradox still exists. And in fact, it's become even more emphasized. And these studies we're talking about have been going on for about 40 to 50 years. It's been tracking this phenomenon for quite some time. What's going on? Can you explain what was going on then and, and continues to today? Well, my background is as a, as a researcher. I'm, I'm a psychometrician by training, which means that I spend most of my, I spend all my career studying uh, ways to measure things that are about people that are really interesting, but you can't count. So you can count weight or you can count uh, earnings or you could count sales. But, but what about people's level of happiness? What about engagement? What about people's strengths? What about their talents? So I've spent all of my career doing that, but I built something called StrengthFinder and now do all of these studies around the world on people's sentiment, on their feelings about things. And one of the things we found at the time, uh, this was 10, 15 years ago now, but it continues to this day, is that women in general are less happy than men and get unhappier both the older they get and when they start to have a family. And that that seems to run counter to what one would expect because uh, women also have more choice. And, and although that choice, you know, here in the United States, we've seen some retrograde movements in terms of those choices. But anyway, in general, more unhappiness has seemed to sort of run parallel to more choice, which is just counterintuitive. You'd have thought more choice leads to more agency in one's life. And you'd have thought that would have led to more happiness. And so at the time I wrote a book, just basically studying what, <laughs> what do the happiest and most successful women do differently? Yeah. Not that obviously I'm not a, obviously not a woman. I do have a research approach. And this is something that we did with Oprah at the time was let's go study women who have somehow, and it must be a neat trick because it's obviously not easy to do, but somehow taken the freedom and the burden of more choice and turned it into fulfillment, measured fulfillment, happiness, and engagement. And, and that was the focus at the time, basically going, what the heck is going on? Why does more choice seem to correlate to more stress and unhappiness? And then what did those women who managed to break that link and actually find joy and fulfillment through choice, what had they done? Could we codify any of it and share it with others? So that was, uh, that was both what the connection with Oprah was and then also sort of what started this research journey. Yeah. Before we move on to the secret to what the happier women are doing right, because I think that's what everyone listening is wanting to hear about, I'll just touch on the fact that, of course, you know, just recently the CDC, they did a big one looking into youth behaviours. And it found that young women, their happiness levels are declining and suicide rates just spiking. And these measurements are, are sort of outweighing what's happening with young men. And so I suppose all of this is now happening from a bad base because a moment ago you mentioned that women are getting unhappier as they get older. So if they're starting out more yeah. unhappy, then we're seeing a real issue starting to emerge here. And I think Jonathan Haidt is writing about this a lot on his Substack, and I'll put a link in the notes to that. And I think a McKinsey study from last year showed that 42% of women feel burned out compared with 32% in just 2020. So mm. I know that you're, you've still got your boots on the ground. Since 2009, when I think you first looked into this, to 2023, what's got even worse? Why has this phenomenon of the paradox of unhappy women increased? So I now run the ADP Research Institute, which is a global institute where it doesn't have any commercial interest. All we're trying to do is try to figure out what's really going on in the world of people's hearts and minds. So we do 75,000 people twice a year in 27 countries, asking a whole ton of different questions about people's hearts and minds. And as you said, that's kind of boots on the ground, just kind of asking questions, listening, writing it down, asking more questions, listening and writing it down. And you're absolutely right. The pattern that we first saw back in 2009 is still there. Um, certainly the pandemic seemed to turn up the volume on it. 
and it's going younger. So, so you've got two things going on that's weird. One is the world is screaming at you all the time through various kinds of social media, various sorts of Im images. You can't really turn it off. The, the idea that lots of people are doing other things that you should be doing or looking the way that you should be looking is just thrust at you with your poor teenage brain. It's almost like it's too hard for you to really fully make sense of. So that's coming at you like a tsunami. And then at the same time, there's another sort of social movement, which is a jolly good one in my view, which says to my daughter, oh, you have lots of choice. You could do anything you want, but we're not really going to help you have any sort of frame of reference in which to make intelligent choices that feel like yours. We're just going to scream at you. So on the one hand, we're going to say, you have lots and lots and lots of choice. You could do anything. And at the same time, we're going to scream at you that there is just an overwhelming volume of things that you should be taking in and processing in some way. Yeah. In the past, 50 years ago, perhaps, perhaps there was less choice, which is bad. And perhaps there was less noise, which was probably good. And so for the individual, it was just simply less overwhelming, less psychologically stressful. When you put those two things together, Sarah, massive choice, massive volume, mm. unless you're a really wise 16-year-old, it's overwhelming. You've got no psychological place to sit and rest and muse or make sense of your own experience. I think that's a key point as well, because I think in the past we had institutions. We even had, Mark, as I talk about this quite a lot, we had a Sabbath, right? You know, there was a day of rest where families just stopped, you know, dad would mow the lawn. I mean, it was boring, but we, we stopped. Now that consumption imperative, that go, go, go imperative never stops. And I think there were also other institutions and forums for what you're really saying is um, showing us how to make discerning decisions, you know, assisting us, guiding us morally in how to form ourselves as a human. And I think that's the really big missing piece from this as well. We might have all these choices, but as you say, if, if we're not taught how to be discerning, if we don't have the space to be discerning, it's extremely overwhelming. But why is this more full on for women? Well, it's clearly for both, by the way. There's no question that men are having their own challenges too at the moment with social media. Young boys too are, are certainly, even in the classroom, it seems doing less well than girls in many subjects. And we actually see now more uh, university undergraduates that are women than men. There's different stresses in relation to the different genders. For women, what you've got, of course, is you've got all this noise, 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 noise. Hey, look, you can choose to do anything, anything, anything. You can choose to do anything. At the same time, you do have, in a way that a man doesn't, a biological imperative or clock that comes with social pressures and anxieties for you that say that there are, A, certain time pressures on you that are not necessarily there for a man, particularly in the first 15 years of your career. There's time pressures on you, and so you're forced to make really big decisions about your success, your creation, your expression, your contribution at the same time as that pressure, which men do not have in the same way anyway. And so for women, there's that pressure. And the day-to-day -day reality then becomes, for women, you're simply, on the surface at least, trying to metabolize more roles. Mm. The responsibilities on women come faster and more explicitly and in greater quantity than for men. And there's a time limit. Yeah. So why is the 42-year-old lawyer the least happy woman? because she's probably pushed her way through all of those different choices in a way that for her didn't feel like it was hers. It didn't feel like it was conscious. And so she wakes up at 42 and she goes, I've somehow lived a second rate version of somebody else's life and I don't quite know how that happened mm. because I thought I was present. I thought I was making intentional decisions around my life, but then I wake up at 42 and I've got some measure of success even perhaps, but I can't remember me. I can't remember me. Yeah. And men, I'm not saying men don't have some other pressures as well. We do. But it's different than what she's gone through. The amount of stuff she's had to process and maintain her own identity while she's doing it is uh, intense. Yeah. And more intense today than even back in 2009. Well, I want to move on to what we immediately do as women. And all around me, all of my friends do this. We think, well, I've got to find balance. I've got to find the perfect quotient between taking the kids to soccer practice uh, my yoga and Pilates stuff, because that's important to be a balanced, all-rounded woman, you know, today, ensuring that I fulfill all my work commitments, ensuring that the house is, you know, clean, whatever, right? We feel like there's this, there's a pie graph out there, right? With the perfect 
number of kind of quadrants all segmented out, right? And that's just if we could just get that perfect formula, then we'd be right. But what I found really interesting back in 2009 when I first came across your work in this area was that, in fact, the women that you spoke to when you were talking to the happier women, the happiest women in your, in your cohort, actually found they were doing precisely the opposite. Can you talk through what the hell that's about? Yeah, so this is a big mind shift for anyone listening. And initially, because remember, all I was doing as a researcher, I'm just asking questions, shutting up. And a couple of things jump out at you like right away. The first is that they have rejected balance as an aspiration explicitly. When one of them said to me, like, you know, it's funny, if you ever get that perfect moment where everything is balanced, first of all, almost impossible to find mm. that moment. But if you ever were to find that moment, whereas you said like the yoga session was amazing, but the finances were also good and your mom and dad were also happy. Mm -hmm. And then your friends also felt like you really cared about them. And then your kids, if you have them, they also, and your job was also, if you ever found that moment, what would be running through your head is nobody move. Nobody. Just nobody breathe. Nobody breathe. <laughs> and, and this image of hers just stuck in my mind at the time. It's like balance is stasis. I don't know if she used that exact word, stationary. Balance is don't move. And yet the problem, of course, in life is that you're moving every day. You just have to wake up and the sun rises with you and off you go. So the image of balance as an aspiration, you suddenly start looking out in nature and you realize that nothing healthy in nature is balanced. Everything healthy in nature is moving. And so these happy women, these engaged women were moving through the different domains of their life. And you're right. There are different domains. There is the family domain, there is the health domain, there is the work domain, there are different domains of your life. But if you think about anybody that you know, where in the back of your mind, you're going, oh, she's just got it together. Ah, oh, she's, how did she, ah, oh, she's, she may be rich, she may not be rich. She, she may be a super close friend of yours. She may be just someone that you admire, but you look at her and you go, oh, she's got it together. If you look at what she's actually got together, she's got this together. How does she move through the different domains of her life and draw the nourishment she needs to keep moving? Health is motion. Yes. How do, you, how do you move through your life in a way that allows you to draw the nutrients to keep moving? That is not a bad metaphor because that's actually what health looks like in any environment. Everything's moving. So that was the first thing. The aspiration isn't balance because that's stationary and precarious and what you want is movement. The second thing, we, what they figured out, and this wasn't, these weren't psychologists. These weren't individual different psychologists. These were people just living their lives. But what they'd figured out, and what we now know actually to be true, is that activities themselves have emotional valence in them, Sarah. Each activity, each moment in a day has energy in it. Each moment is either a little down or a little up. One of them was talking about being a mother, and she was like, what is it to be a mother? What does that even mean? It's like being a mother is like a, it's like a fabric. And there are many threads in the fabric. There's many activities of being a, making dinner, picking the kids up, playing with the kids on the ground, reading them from a book or putting them to, there's a million different threads in the fabric of being a mom. And what she'd said is, so some of those threads I hate. You've you got to figure out what your red threads are. What are your red threads? Because some of the threads are black or green or gray or white, a little up, a little down, but some of these threads are red. Some of these threads are emotionally very, very positive for you. When you're doing them, time flies by. And yet every mom's different. Every mother is different in terms of what her red threads are. Everybody else, every other mother is colorblind to your red threads as a mother. So some mothers, they like getting down on the ground and playing with the kids on playing with the toys and making the little scenes. And some pe people do like that. Others don't. And what these individual women had figured out, which nobody tells you, but that each activity itself has emotional resonance to it. Some are red threads and some are sort of gray or green or black or white or whatever. And for no good reason, other than the clash of your chromosomes, you find some activities in, let's say, the domain of motherhood being invigorating for you. You figure out what those are and you tilt your life toward those. The phrase I used in the book was catch and cradle. They were deliberately, because attention is a creative act. Mm -hmm. Attention is a creative act. What, a, what the heck are the specific activities of being, I'll use, I keep on with being a mom, but what are the specific activities of being a mom that I find I lean into? Before I do it, I look forward to it. While I'm doing it, it feels like I've been doing it for five minutes, but it's an hour. Time flies by. 
what are the activities when, when I'm done with that, I kind of almost want to do it again. What are those? Because it isn't everything. And so that, as you went through all of these different women, they had figured out that activities themselves have emotional value in them. And everyone's different. So no one can tell you. This is why advice can be so pernicious and comparison can be so pernicious. Yeah. Nobody's got the same red threads as you. And yet, if you want to see what's the secret to happiness, you find the red threads in each domain of your life, and then you tilt, if you like, you tilt your life toward them. You imbalance your life. Yeah, that was the word that I really caught onto when this study first came out many years ago. It was tilting. I really get it. It's a sort of an energetic leaning towards. And it's, as you say, it's, it's very much about movement. You tilt in one moment and then in the next moment you might have to tilt over here and you live your life as this almost uh, agile dance where you move from one thing to another where there's a certain amount of charm. There's something, you call it a red thread. I use the word charm. Does it, you know, Maria Kondo would use the word, does it bring you joy or spark joy? Is that what we're talking about here? Do people just tap into that energetic resonance, as you call it, and just go, that's where I need to be. Let's move in that direction. Yes. And for context, between then, when you first encountered this work and now, we've had an epidemic globally of burnout, not just in women, but in emergency room nurses specifically. And this was pre-pandemic. During the pandemic, we just put pressure on the pre-existing pain. The largest research facility over here in the United States is the Mayo Clinic. So the Mayo Clinic did something pretty smart. They went and studied nurses who were not burned up during the pandemic, who were not struggling with their resilience. And they basically did a whole bunch of research on, well, what's the conditions within which those nurses are existing? One of the things they found, they found 20% of their activities in a day were red threads, 20%. 20% activities that they loved. And it was a threshold. So if you were 40% red threads or 40% things that charmed you, you weren't twice as resilient. If you were 60% of your day was red threads, you weren't three times as resilient. It was a threshold. You get above 20% every day and all sorts of good things happen for you as a human. Your health is better. Your psychology is better. All sorts of things that are measurable are better for you. You get below 20%. You get 19, 18, 17, 16. There's almost a perfect linear rise in burnout risk, almost like the numbers are faked because it's so perfect. You get down to zero. And obviously, some of us think this way, you know, my life, I just have to get through it. And maybe if I have one happy day in 28, then that'll be okay. The Mayo Clinic research goes, no, 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 no. It doesn't have to be all day, yeah. but it better be 20% and it better be every day. It better be every okay. day. That's the way that love works. That's why you're tilting every day. You've got a certain amount of things that you attend to. Mm. Every day, you're trying to tilt your attention towards some activities in every domain of what you're doing. Very specific level things, not like I like people, but I like talking to these kind of people in this kind of situation about this kind of subject. And that's just me. I don't know why it is the way that it is, but it is. That kind of vividness, Sarah, and specificity, but every day, that was their big finding was the most resilient emergency room nurses had gone, okay, this job isn't the perfect job, but there better be some red threads every day. And 20% seems to be the great threshold that you get above it and you don't burn up. You don't get sick. You don't have mental health problems. So some of those things are external factors. I'm not suggesting they didn't find some of those things too. But some of this resilience is a function of you taking your flipping loves seriously. Because if you don't, if you don't know what these red threads are, no one else can tell you what yours are. Well, how can you encourage people to do that? Is it about taking time to reflect on it? I know you talk a lot about strong moments and identifying strong moments. Mm. And I think I'd love you to talk through how that works. But primarily, I'd love you to share with everyone listening how they can really identify those 20% red threads. I think the doing that everyday thing, yep, we can, we can work on that. But how do we identify these things in the first instance and then, as you say, respect them, really respect and honor them. Yeah. This goes to your point about respect yourself. By the time you're 19, you have 100 trillion synaptic connections in your brain, 100 trillion. And that's more synaptic connections in your brain than there are stars and planets in 5,000 Milky Ways. That's how complex and beautiful and filigreed every human being is. And when you die, Sarah, or when I die, there will never be a person with exactly the same combination of synapses than you. 
ever. And what you love, what your strong moments are, what you lean into, what you get a kick out of is unreplicable. Like you are unbelievably unique. And first of all, know that. Everybody that's listening or watching should just know that there's no one like you in terms of the specifics of what you love, what you loathe, what you're into, what makes you laugh, what you struggle. Like it's just, you're amazingly unique. And that weirdly, the best way to decode that, to answer your question, you have been given a decoder. And not to be too soft on this, but your love is a decoder for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you wake up in the morning, you tend to think that your life is something just to get through, like it's the enemy, like you have to keep it at bay, you sort of get through the day. But if you did a mind shift and you just thought, hey, maybe my life is actually my smartest, wisest, most loving friend. Maybe my life wakes up with me every morning and sort of tries to put on a show for me and tries to show me a whole bunch of different activities in the day, moments, and says, basically, is this a strong one? Do you love this one? What about this one? Is this a red thread? Basically, that's what your life is doing every day, going, how about this? How about that? How about this? And so if you wanted to figure out what your strong moments are in a, in a life, just take a week, just take one week, take a blank pad around with you and draw a line down the middle of the pad and write loved it yep. at the top of one column and loathed it at the top of the other column. Take it with you for a week and look for three signs of love or three signs of what you would call charm. Before you do it, you have positive anticipation for it. You find yourself instinctively looking forward to it. Second, while you're doing it, you experience what the positive psychologist Mike Chekshamahai called flow. So you experience time speeding up in a weird way. And when you're done with it, you kind of want to do it again. You're not drained. Oh, thank God that's over. No, you're not saying that. You're like, hmm. You're, to use the Latin, you're invigorated. Now, you might not be ready quite to do it again, but you're, when you're done with it, you feel up, not down. Now, there are other clues, but those are three really good ones. Take a blank pad around with you for a week, any time in any domain of your life, at work, at home, with friends, you find any one of those signs and they don't always correlate perfectly. Sometimes you might procrastinate something, but then when you're doing it, time flies by. Okay, that's interesting. Write that down. Right, so just write down in the week, what are the activities where you saw those signs? And then if you want to, do the inverse. Anytime you find you push something off, you keep pushing it off. Okay, that's interesting. That doesn't mean you can't just not do it necessarily, but it's interesting when you push something off. Or when you're doing something, time seems to drag on. You feel like you've been doing it for an hour, but it's just five minutes. Okay, write that down. When you're done with it, you feel a bit psychologically mm. drained. Write that down. Just do it for a week. What you'll see is, I hope, on the right-hand column of the loved it's, you'll see a bunch of activities that give energy to you that actually are not the same as the person who's even your sister or your closest friend. Oh, we all like that. No, 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 no. Because I've done this so many times, Sarah. You compare, for people that have obviously given me the right to have a look, you compare lists of people who've known each other for years and do very similar work or have very similar situations in life. And their list is totally different from one another. And so as a way to start, You've got to start by taking your emotional reaction to the activities of a week seriously. Don't let anyone judge you. 
Don't let anyone force you to compare. It's like the old saying says, when you compare, you disappear. Okay, stop that. Love it, loathe it for one week. And then, of course, for you, you by yourself in a quiet moment. It's what you were saying about girls, that there's no time to stop. If you took a week and looked at those sorts of things, at least you would begin to know that your life is actually trying to show you where the energy is. I would suggest people do that twice a year for the rest of their lives. Twice a year, take an inventory of a week and see where the energy is. Doesn't mean you can't find more red threads. Doesn't mean you couldn't find more strong moments. You, you can. You'll get better at it, actually. But it does mean that you need to start with your own life and look at the emotional resonance that exists for you in the moments of your own life. You know, it's the whole thing about tilting that you said. You know, you look at the people that in your life that are really thriving. You would start, your first thought is, lucky them. How did they find that life? And then you realize it's the wrong verb. They didn't find that life. They made it. They took a generic life or a generic role, like a friend or, or a mother or a, a daughter or a worker or whatever. And then they gradually, deliberately, I'm putting this in quotes, selfishly tilted their life in various domains more toward those strong moments and away from the others. Not to be selfish, but actually so that you can contribute more over time. I know that one of the things that you do talk about, and I remember it from back way back when, um, you talk about learning to say yes. And of course, we're a culture um, and, you know, I'm partially responsible. You know, I edited magazines where it was all about know your boundaries, learn to say no. And I really feel that that's been the dominant message. But you're saying, no, 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 wrong way, go back, work with yes. Can you just tell us how that operates? So we live in a culture that is fascinated by pathology, by what's going wrong. And we live in a world where we define right by studying wrong and then saying, don't do that. So in order to learn about marriage, we study divorce. To learn about joy and wisdom, we study depression and psychosis. Everywhere, we think the good is the opposite of bad. And what we miss, of course, is that good isn't the opposite of bad. It's just different. So if you want to understand what a happy marriage looks like, weirdly enough, you have to study happy marriages. So the idea of the power of yes is that in your life, change follows the focus of your attention. If you pathologize your life, if you're looking at all the things that are problematic to you, maybe you have social anxiety disorder, maybe you have imposter syndrome, maybe you just have conflict with your spouse or partner, and that's what you focus on, and you go to therapy to fix it, and that's what you talk about and think about. And and by the way, that's not all bad, but if you're not careful, you've problematized your life. If you want to look at a healthy, thriving life, what that person has done is, I'm not saying they've ignored the obstacles and problems, but they've said, what is it that I want to say yes to? What are the moments that bring out the best in me or the best in us? Where are they? What happens when they happen? You can't infer any of the answers to that question by studying the things you've said no to. If you really deeply study where you feel at your strongest and feel at your best, where you feel like when you said yes to something, it was the best expression of you. If you build a life by studying the yeses, what do you say yes to and why? And how does it work? And why does it work? The other stuff falls away. I don't mean that it goes away. So this may not be obvious to you, but when I was growing up, I couldn't speak. I had a stutter, right? Like a really bad one. So I was like 12, 13, I couldn't say my own name. And I studied it. Like I was a little baby researcher, Sarah, even then. So I read every book and I studied, 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 and I focused, focused, and I tried to sing and join the choir because I thought that would make me, I'd read somewhere that that helped some other people. It didn't help me. That was my entire existence, was waking up every day and going, I can't communicate. And then one day I saw that I'd picked as a student to read aloud in class in chapel the next week. I tried to get my parents to call, call them up and tell them to not abuse their student. And back then, maybe Care today parents to would do that. But <laughs> right. And so the next day I wake up and I think my life's over. I get to chapel. 
the chaplain asked me to come up to the lectern in the chapel. But I got to the lectern, I turned around, and I saw something, Sarah, that I'd never seen before. I saw 400 faces looking at me. And for whatever crazy reason, the stimulus of 400 people looking at me tripped a bunch of synapses in my crazy head, and I was fluent. It was like a warm helmet around my head. And I found myself able to speak words in a way that was normal. And I'm sharing that not because I was brave. I wasn't brave. I was scared out of my mind. But the only smart thing I did that day, but it's something that everybody can do, is I figured to myself, wow, that's a red thread of mine. I can speak only when 400 people are looking at me. I don't even know why, but that activity has resonant energy for me that I didn't know about. And so I said, well, why don't I take that thread and I'll weave it into those moments when I can't speak? And the stammer went away in a week. And so when we talk about say yes to things, what you're really saying is take those moments, those strong moments for you, which whatever they are, and understand that they not only have power in that moment, but you could, let's say you have social anxiety disorder. When didn't you? What was the moment when you actually had sort of energy around people? Who were you talking to? What were you talking about? Can you understand that and then bring that yes into these other moments? There's a lot of power that goes unused in our own lives because we've been so busy building barriers of what to say no to. I've got a similar story, Marcus. I'll, I'll keep it quick. I was a very nervous kid. Didn't have many mates, but I was good at maths. And I would say that that was one of my, my red threads. There was certainty and I would stay up till three in the morning doing Lewis Carroll logic problems, which worked to a certain type of mathematical formula. And I would go into maths exams so nervous and so heightened that I would go to the bathroom and I would say to myself, actually, I'm excited. I'm excited. And so I have a, I guess, a mantra, which is I choose excitement. So when I'm anxious, I'll feel these feelings and I'll go, nope, it's excitement, game on. So that notion of saying yes and leaning towards the positive interpretation I worked that out at a young age and for similar reasons in some ways, because my anxiety was potentially as debilitating as your stammer. It really stopped me from doing a whole lot of stuff until I worked out this excitement formula. Gosh, that's such a, that's so, that gives me goosebumps because it's like you took something which had those signs of love, like doing those Lewis Carroll problems, but you took that and went, that's true. That is truth for me. And I, I will frame those feelings around this word excitement. It's not some book you read or whatever. It's coming from within your own life and your emotional reaction to your own life. That's so powerful. Mm. Going back to the first thing I was talking about with my daughter, wouldn't it be great if someone just told her that story, your story, and not in a way that said, you should love Lewis Carroll poems too. No, 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 it's, that's not the point. The point is that Sarah took the emotional reaction she had to certain activities really, 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 really seriously. And it helped her thrive in situations or encounters she wouldn't otherwise have thrived. That's a life skill. Yeah. And yes has been my yes has been my mantra, a surging yes, like a primal scream yes, all of my life, which drove my parents insane. But listening to you talking about all of this, the amount of energy it takes to say no, to put on brakes, to hold yourself back from the thing that excites you, that that is what causes disease because of the resistance. And I think that, yeah, I, out of necessity, was able to identify the things that brought me charm, but really because they kept me afloat. They, you know, If I didn't do that, I don't know that I would have had much else as a child. And for you as well, it was live or die, really. At least I'm sure that's how it felt as a child, getting up there on a stage. You had to find a way. Well, it, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Like, it isn't always so that appetite leads to ability. It isn't always so that finding the things you want to say yes to leads to, now you should go find a job you love. By the way, there's no data that says the most happy, engaged, resilient people have found a job they love. They haven't. They found the love in what they I do, which is different. Mm. They found the love in what they do, which is what you're saying. They find the charm in what you do. And, and it doesn't always turn into a job. Sometimes it turns into a hobby. And why do we love hobbies? Hobbies bring more love and charm into our lives. That's fine. Often, though, it does lead to appetite, which leads to practice, which leads to performance. So there's no question that, that appetite, what do you say yes to, is a hugely important thing for you to understand about yourself. 
that's just a a hugely important part of your makeup that you have to take seriously. The other thing it made me think of is that love is a force. And isn't it weird, Sarah, how if you are in a situation, perhaps it's a relationship, perhaps it's a work situation where you can't express what you love or what charms you. You somehow put those brakes on and maybe you're doing it even for the good reasons or best reasons, the most noble intentions, but it's stuck inside you. Well, love turns into a poison when it doesn't flow out of you. This isn't just a nice, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we all had things in our lives that charmed us or that we loved? Wouldn't it be nice if we had strong moments? No, no, it's not nice, as you're saying. It's flipping survival, because if you don't, even with the best of intentions, if you don't find a way to express it, it will kill you. And the 42-year-old lawyer who wakes up at 42, some part of her unhappiness is that the love is still in there. There's no expression. So it's got to be expressed because otherwise it stays inside you and hurts you. As you said, it's what causes the mental and physical problems that occur for so many of us in our lives. Yeah. And I know that your most recent book is called Love and Work and it goes into all of this. And you don't strike me as a particularly woo-woo kind of guy. Like you're not talking fuzzy feelings. You're really talking about that notion of a force that needs to be given movement or at least enabled to flow. It's interesting. I, I think doing a quick scan of some of the reviews of that book, it seems like there were a few findings, particularly around women, in that book. Is there anything you'd like to share from, from that most recent book that relates to what we're talking about here, the tilting, the choosing the charm, saying yes as a driving force to keep movement going? Is there anything to that effect that you found from your most recent research? What I was trying to do in the book, Love and Work, was rehabilitate love. When you are in love with someone, your neurochemistry changes. And what's interesting is when you're doing anything that's a strong moment, when you're doing anything that you would say charms you, or that I would say is like a red thread, we find the same chemical cocktail in your brain. You have elevated levels of serotonin, oxytocin, norepinephrine, uh, anandamide. And what they think is what's going on is it's dysregulating your neocortex, which is your very goal-oriented, focused part of you. And it opens you up for more information, more input, more collaboration. Your brain on love is just smarter. I mean, we, we can see something happening in your brain that makes you more open to new configurations and making more effective configurations. You're just smarter. So the point of the, of the book, in a sense, was to rehabilitate this. And there are so many women that don't take their own loves seriously. They have been overwhelmed with the amount of choices that they've been given, but then no help to know how to make sense of the choices for themselves. And when they start talking about love or they start talking about charm, even though certainly with love, it's the first thing you start searching for when you're born and it's the very last thing you try to cling onto before you die. I mean, it defines your life. Women, to some extent, the, the world of work particularly is seen as transactional. You're not an employee, you're a full-time equivalent. You're not an employee, you're a head count. It's a very sort of if you're not careful, a very unemotional, masculine sort of world in which we live. And so the thing that I was particularly hoping to do for women was to go, not only should you take your own loves seriously, the more fluent you are in that language, what are these moments? When do they occur for you? How effectively can you contribute through them? That's the secret to thriving. And any person, but particularly any woman that puts that aside because it feels soft or something, has missed the quintessence of the human experience. The quintessence of the human experience is a loving experience. And so for women that step back away from that because they feel that they won't be tough or strong enough in the boardroom or they're not going to come across as powerful enough, it's like, no, no. Loveless excellence is oxymoronic. Loveless creativity is oxymoronic. Wherever you see anything good happening, there's love in it. And if you step into that as a woman in the world, but as a woman at work, then you will win in every way that you might want to define win. Yeah, Marcus, is it a particularly female thing? I imagine this applies to men, but perhaps in slightly different ways. And I guess that's a one way of asking, you know, are men better at this idea of tilting? I remember thinking when you were doing this work back in 2009, yeah, I actually think men are. Men will actually 
do their email in a big chunk. I'm making generalizations here, but this is my observation after many years of working with men and women in the in the workforce. Men will get the emailing done when it sort of suits them. Then they'll do the big important phone calls as it feels like it's the most, you know, important thing to do. They'll go off and play a round of golf. You know what I mean? Like in their lunch break, because that's what they want to do. There just does seem to be this idea that men they've kind of got tilting sorted. Have I got that wrong or right? Well, you haven't got it wrong. I don't have data that say that men are better at this than women. I do have a lot of data that show that in general, over the course of their lives, women become unhappier at a faster rate and a bigger rate than men do because of some of the reasons that we described. It may well be true, though, that men simply feel, in some cases, more comfortable in a world of fewer choices or in a world where society allows them to have fewer choices and reinforces the fact that they can do some of the things that you just described and it's okay. And women live in a world where all the external communications are saying to women, no, 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 you can't do that. You gotta, you've always got to be on. There's somewhere, there's somebody somewhere you're letting down. And as we move through life with those kinds of signals coming at us, those are gendered. I mean, there's no question we can see that there are more choices foisted upon women than there are on men socially. So in that case, I'm not, I'm not suggesting men are better at tilting. It's just they may have uh, less noise and confusion in their lives. Mm. And so it's easier for them because they have fewer choices. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's just harder for women. Yeah. Well, therein lies a wonderful challenge to do things differently, to learn this tilting mechanism and experience the I guess, the difference between before and after. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about any kind of life uh, that might be harder than it is for others, right? Like you get the opportunity to experience the contrast. Yes. I mean, I think that's where I suppose I would end this, Sarah, is to say that what is really hopeful about everything we've learned in brain science over the last 25 years, what's really hopeful is that in every single individual human's life, the activities in the day are emotionally resonant, either down or up. But there's, there's energy in every activity. And so if you do tilt your attention, there are answers there. If you do that love it, loathe it for a week, it's a very rare person, although I have seen it happen, where there's nothing in the love column. We have been built to find joy or find love in the moments of our life. And that if we look, they will be there. Maybe not enough right now. Maybe you haven't been as intentional in tilting as you could have been. Maybe you haven't yet imbalanced your life in a way that it feels like yours. Okay, then time rolls on and you can start tomorrow and then you can do it again tomorrow. So that to me feels very hopeful. Wonderful. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you so much, Marcus Buckingham. It's great to reconnect after, gosh, what, 20-odd years. <laughs> yes. As I listened to Marcus talk us through tilting, I've got to say I was reminded of something that Annie Dillard, an incredible writer, wrote about in her book. I think it's called This Writing Life. And um, I've just dug it up now on the interwebs, and I'll read it out to you. People love pretty much the same things best. A writer looking for subjects inquires not after what he loves best, but after what he alone loves at all. Strange seizures beset us. Frank Conroy loves his yo-yo tricks. Emily Dickinson, her slant of light. Each student of the ferns, I once read, will have his own list of plants that for some reason or another stirs his emotions. I really do think that so much of our purpose and sense that our life matters comes from working out what we uniquely love. The trick is to get still and real enough with ourselves to work it out, to work out what these things, these red threads, as Marcus calls them, might be. Now, as you heard, Marcus recommends doing an old-fashioned list divided into, I think it was, what, loves and loathes. Um, I'm not into that kind of thing. I'm not into these kinds of life hack exercises, but I, I figure that it might work for a lot of people out there. And I'll just remind you then that there are three things he said that will help you identify the stuff that you can start to tilt towards. The first is whether it activates a perceived anticipation in you. The second is whether when you're doing it, you experience flow. That is, you're not aware of time as you're doing it. The third is that it doesn't make you feel drained. It leaves you energized. I guess I've been aware of this tilting thing for a while now. I really have, like for 15 years. And I've been using color to determine whether something is 
something that I want to keep doing. And so if I see it in black and white, it's something I tend to move away from. I also have a dread or cringe-a-meter inside of me. If I witness myself cringing when I think about having to do something, I know it's something I probably need to have another good look at. Now, the idea behind tilting is not about avoiding responsibilities, you know, just not wanting to do the things that don't bring you joy. It's about reframing how to deal with all the competing responsibilities. It's about getting refined and artful. I reckon that so often what we think matters just doesn't. And so much of our stress lies in this perfect balancing or perfect lifing. It's a very female thing to do, I think. An example that I've just thought of, a friend of mine, she once said, she confessed, she doesn't like playing with her son, but she forces herself to, and that leaves her feeling super resentful. But recently she told me that she's realised she actually does like teaching her son things. So what she does now is she gets him to help her with the cooking, or she'll go on a walk um, around some rock pools and she'll, you know, check out crabs with him and tell him about various creatures in in the ocean. And that brings her a huge amount of energy. So she's been tilting towards that kind of thing with her little boy. Now, I think this is all stuff that we can think about. I think the list could work for some of you. Maybe just some of those wisdoms uh, will land and that will be enough for you to think about this idea of tilting. I reckon it's a great one. And a little reminder, if you want to give feedback on this topic or anything you hear on WILD, Substack is where I engage these days. It's a platform for writers and readers who like considered opinions and discussions. Uh, You can check it out, sarahwilson.substack.com. Anyway, I will catch you next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.